Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. This week on the show, I want to talk about something I've seen a few times now on the internet, the most recent time being yesterday. It's intriguing to me for a number of reasons, but most of all because it extends the arc of my preoccupation with Metallica singer and guitarist James Hatfield. During a recent Metallica show, Hatfield revealed some very personal thoughts to the crowd in an episode that got emotional enough to warrant an impromptu group hug from the remaining members of the band. His sentiments were that he felt as though he may be getting too old to play as well as he used to, and that it depressed him. He also said that as a result, he found it difficult to come out on stage before the show. He called out the support of the other members of the band, and that prompted them to leave their instruments and come over to him on stage. And a few weeks later, at the conclusion of a song, he commented about how emotional that song made him, and he appeared to get choked up. As a Metallica fan, and more specifically as a James Hetfield fan of almost 40 years at this point, this stuff definitely gets my attention. Now, Hetfield's level of candor, while it's absolutely appreciated, is is unusual for most any rock musician, let alone one with Hetfield's history. Over the years, we've seen a progressive humanization of James Hetfield, but now we've gone beyond that expected arc. And I guess my preoccupation with this is rooted in the evolution of personal identity and the challenges that come with truly accepting the progression of that arc when there's so much time and history and emotional investment involved. And not just for James Hetfield, but for all of us. I remember my introduction to Hetfield and Metallica like it was yesterday. I held their Kill 'Em All debut record in my curious little hands in a record store somewhere in the southern United States during summer vacation back in 1983. I wasn't sure what it would sound like, but I had to know. And a short while later, in the back of the family station wagon, via my trusty Sony Walkman, I found out what it sounded like. And along with one or two other records that I'd heard around the same time, I can say that it did change everything. As a young new metal fan, the most exciting thing about heavy metal for me were the guitar riffs. It was for this reason that Metallica's Kill 'Em All quickly became my favorite of all the cassettes that I'd bought on that summer vacation trip. Without question, James Hetfield wrote some of the most blistering heavy metal riffs ever recorded. Hetfield made a lasting impression on me as I became more and more intrigued by Metallica over the course of the 1980s. I identified him as the figurehead of the band, Sorry, Lars. And my entire high school locker was covered in Hatfield-only full-page pictures collected from magazines like Circus and Hit Parader. As Motley Crue's Nikki Six transformed away from his shout-of-the-devil leather look and into polka-dotted ubiquity, Hatfield took over full command of my 15-year-old attention. With Hatfield, it wasn't so much his look, per se. It was his intensity. He didn't deliberately strike rock star poses. In fact, he hunched over his guitar to the point where it kind of made my back hurt just watching him do it. He just seemed to personify the coolest version of mayhem that I had seen at that point. 
with his Gibson Explorer, later ESP, cranking out those bone-crushing riffs, and with hair whipping around everywhere at full speed and head-banging abandon, it was exciting. He just looked like the perfect representation of how Metallica's music sounded. Watching Hatfield perform really was riveting. His guitar-picking hand was ridiculously accurate, all downstrokes. His fretting hand was super fast, index and pinky fingers outstretched in opposite directions as they moved through each note of each riff. Above all, with Hatfield, I was amazed at how proficiently he could still play as he sang at the same time. And drank. It's no secret that Hatfield was buzzed for most of the 80s. People used to refer to the band as Alcoholica. With respect to his playing, Hetfield has humbly said in the past that the studio is a forgiving atmosphere in terms of making mistakes and that his playing may not have been as good live. But I never did see that. He's been impressive in any live environment I've seen him in, even way back then. A truly gifted guitar player. Now, I found out much later that Hetfield only became the singer of Metallica by default because they couldn't find anyone else they liked. John Bush of Armored Saint and later Anthrax was asked to join, but he declined. Of course, it's hard to imagine what the band would have sounded like with someone else as the lead singer. And though he didn't get a lot of accolades as a vocalist, I always thought Hetfield's naturally raw approach was perfect for Metallica. It's funny because he was regarded as more of a guitar player than a vocalist back then, if he was even regarded as a vocalist at all. In the earliest incarnations of the band, Hatfield had initially intended only to sing and not even to play guitar. At this point, it's almost impossible to imagine that. I saw Metallica live in Sudbury when they were touring the Master of Puppets record back in 1986. They headlined the show. It was an off-date from their opening slot on Ozzy's Ultimate Sin Tour. And Metal Church and a Canadian band called Kickaxe were along with Metallica in Sudbury. The Sudbury Arena probably held about 5,000 people, and I think it was probably about half full. Metallica came on after Metal Church, and it was a raw, deafeningly loud show. I was paralyzed with glee that James Hatfield and Metallica had come to my remote little corner of the universe in Sudbury. During the show, Hatfield remarked between songs that he loved Canadian beer. He toasted the crowd and gulped from his plastic cup. Sudbury's bylaws sadly, but probably wisely, prevented the sale of alcohol in the Sudbury arena back then. I also remember about that show that Hetfield substituted the word Sudbury for the city when he sang the first line of Metallica's song Seek and Destroy, scanning the scene in Sudbury tonight. How could you not think that's cool when you're 15? I'm sure Hetfield did this during the previous and the next night shows in other cities, of course, but I still get a huge charge out of it. I still have that ticket stub for the concert. I had ticket number 16. The date on the ticket reads Wednesday, December 10, 1986. Admission, $15.50. When Metallica's second album, Ride the Lightning, came out, I was pleasantly surprised. As a metal kid, you want your favorite bands to just keep making the same record over and over. Because anything billed as artistic growth usually really just meant selling out by padding the profits of the record company. At least, that's how I saw it as a teenager. Metallica actually did 
Grow with Ride the Lightning. This album is probably my favorite Metallica record just because it retains the band's still fresh naivete and that youthful aggression while demonstrating that sophisticated musicality they had. The band would grow yet again with their next record, Master of Puppets. And by this time, Metallica had defined themselves as an absolute metal superpower, all with little to no radio play and not one video on MTV. And while it wasn't a bad record, Metallica's next album, called And Justice For All, positioned the band closer to mainstream success with the release of their very first music video for their song, One. Before this, in late 1987, the band released a small collection of songs called the 598 EP, Garage Days Re-Revisited. The release was a mini-album of cover songs the band jammed mostly in the garage of Lars Ulrich's new house in El Cerrito. This EP seemed to run directly counter to those record company profit strategies. The cassette liner notes indicated the album was not very produced by Metallica, and also an insistence that it not be sold for more than $5.98. It's a fun little record because it's basically just a rough, raw garage jam of some of the band's favorite songs. For me, it just made Metallica more endearing as a band, and it intensified my connection to them. But even then, I knew change would be imminent. And that's certainly not a slight against Metallica. One of the key ingredients in the legitimacy of the band's early material is that special fire that only youth and inexperience can bring. But this fire exists in a finite capacity, and like youth, it can't be sustained forever. And sometimes this notion can be troublesome when it comes time to accept that arc progression that I was talking about earlier. With the release of And Justice for All in 1988, Metallica finally reached out to the MTV generation, relinquishing that underground identity that they had touted since the beginning of the 80s. And their next record, referred to somewhat ironically as the Black Album, would see Metallica reach heights of megastardom and become a household name. Now this is something I really never, ever, ever thought I would see. At this point, the vision and the musicality were still very much present, but that initial intensity and angst were spent. There was progression. Now, this is to be expected, of course. It's logical and it's imminent. Metallica's fury was impossible to sustain, really. It's unreasonable to think that any band could carry on at that pace for more than two or three records. But it's always been interesting to me that we experience such emotional distress when we're faced with progressively moving away from our own histories. On one hand, the angst of youth powers a pure, attractive passion. It's absolutely glorious. And on the other hand, after the youthful glory is gone, it leaves behind a shell of what formerly was. That spark of angst, no longer there, but the memories still are. There's no question that the intensity of Metallica's first three records was made possible largely by the exacerbated adolescent rage of James Hatfield in particular. Hatfield himself has admitted that his strict Christian science upbringing and broken home childhood manifested themselves in severe alcohol abuse and a tendency towards aggression 
and violence. Much has been made of the Some Kind of Monster Metallica documentary wherein Hetfield returns from rehab and tries to suggest that work on the upcoming record end each day at 4 o'clock so that he can go home and spend time with his family. You know, I was personally happy for Hetfield during this time for getting it together and putting his issues behind him. Because really, that's what should have happened. Otherwise, Hetfield's a character in an Aronofsky movie played by Mickey Rourke. And nobody wants to see that. I will say, however, perhaps somewhat hypocritically, that as pleased as I am for Hatfield, the monster that his awful upbringing created was responsible for some of the best moments in the history of heavy metal. And if that tells us something about the purity of art, then so be it. James Hatfield and Metallica were my last line of defense against the world as an uncertain 15-year-old kid back in 1984. But the fact of the matter is, while Metallica's early career magic came from the purity of that raw, young aggression, we can't hang on to this stuff forever. This is why it's absurd when people say things like Metallica's death magnetic is Metallica's return to Master of Puppets form. People only say that because they want it to be, not because it actually is or ever could be. Maybe a little part of all of us does want that. Maybe a little part of James Hetfield himself wants that. It is hard to watch him candidly admit that he's depressed about no longer being able to play the way that he used to. Because through our emotional investment in Hetfield and his music as younger people, it can be a sad harbinger of our own mortality. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>